welcome to Cult Movie Cult, where we watch and discuss the horrific, the obscure, and the flat-out strange from the other side of cinema. This is Mark Dickerson. And I'm Jeremy Fink. And this is the third installment in our series, 80s Indies. Today we'll be discussing 1982's Smithereens, directed by Susan Seidelman. You know, I got in a fight on a bus once. Some jerk's giving me a hard time, you know, lawyer type, reading the New York Times. And he kept inching his shoulder closer to mine, so I kept moving away. But all the time, he's hiding behind his paper, you know, like he's minding his own Two business. More. So you know what I did? I pretended like I was lighting a cigarette, and then I reached over and I lit his New York Times on fire. <laughs> Boy, was he pissed. So was a bus driver. He kicked me off the bus. I had a good laugh at him. I didn't pay to get on the bus anyway. You didn't need really to do that. Yeah, I did. No big deal. Smithereens is a 1982 American drama film directed by Susan Seidelman and starring Susan Berman, Brad Wren, and punk rock icon Richard Hell. The film follows a narcissistic young woman from New Jersey who comes to New York City to join the punk subculture only to find that being part of the scene is harder than she thought it would be. Yeah. And again, it's that old New York like we saw with uh, Miss 45, our first movie in the series. Mm-hmm. It's that, um, you know, the New York of the 80s, which was a lot like we talked about before, grittier and and dirtier. <laughs> very dirty. Um, yeah, you can actually see the dirt like in some of the shots, um, a lot of the shots. So yeah, it's a very raw and um, street level film. And first time I had seen it, you had seen it before though, correct? Yeah, I, I saw this film uh, a little while ago. Um, mm-hmm. Probably I want to say five or six years ago at this point. Been been a little while. Um, which which is now, cool throughout this was series. Was that with the director? Because I know you had spoken to the director. No, so yeah, so what Mark is referring to is I I saw this right when I saw this movie. Um, I was just kind of starting out uh, making films on my own, and at the time I was doing a lot of real like ragtag. You know, I had just moved to New York City, and I was doing a lot of kind of ragtag. You know, wandering in the streets with friends and a camera, um, kind of this this kind of guerrilla filmmaking, mm-hmm. and I was really inspired by what she was able to pull off. So I just I just uh, reached out to her via social media. Um, just mm-hmm. with a message and just, you know, introduced myself and told her how much I enjoyed her film and described some of the, the challenges I was facing. And, and the response, you know, she, she was really encouraging in the response, really nice of her uh, to get back to me at all. And one quote that I, I'd like to lead with, which I think it perfectly encapsulates this film, is she said, the more I ran into obstacles, the more determined I became to finish it, it being the film, mm-hmm. of course, um, which I think for, for a series about 80s indies and for an 80s indie film, I think that's kind of encapsulates perfectly the entire ethos of what this yeah. style of filmmaking is all about. Definitely. Must have been like the perfect movie for you to watch when you yeah. first moved to New it York. Was just, yeah. It was just so cool. Like, like especially I'd, I'd walk the streets um, and, you know, I'd see the locations that maybe she, she shot some of it in and I'd mm-hmm. be like, oh, like I could use something like that, but it looks like a totally different thing now because yeah. it's now all these years later. So it, it is really cool. There, there is this, mm-hmm. this lineage, I think, with New York filmmakers um, versus L.A. filmmakers, where I think New York filmmakers um, really kind of take a lot of pride in, in how scrappy they are. Mm-hmm. Um, like you, you see people not you see people all the time just out on the streets, just with, with no crew, just doing like the yeah. most wild, bold, <laughs> daring guerrilla thing. And, it, and it, it's really cool to be part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this was 1982. So the same year as the last film we talked about, Eating Raul, um, although on the other side of the country. So mm-hmm. that was in take took place in, in L.A. And this takes place in New York, obviously. And um, this is, uh, I would say, a very different vibe from the first two 80s indies that we've talked about mm-hmm. so far. And uh, this is more of, I would say, a, a character study about this 20-something 
Wren is her name, mm-hmm. uh, making her way in 80s New York. And um, I found it very interesting because I, I, I personally, I don't know how you feel about them, but I, I love character studies. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, for a low budget movie, doing that kind of a film makes a lot of sense and yep. uh, it lets you be more loose. And, and also, if you know that as an audience member, that you're, that's what you're watching, I think you can, um, you know, your expectations will be more in line with what's presented to you, right? Because if you're not expecting too much of a, a story or too much plot or anything like that, um, then you kind of just go along for the ride. So I like those kinds of movies where you kind of just strap in and, and go along with this character. And a lot of times the character is not... Um, maybe not the funnest to be around, you know, like, mm-hmm. as, as I would say with this character, Ren, and uh, like the movie, the comedy comes to mind. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that with Tim Heidecker, um, yeah. um, where, you know, you're following this, just these awful, per- this awful person uh, and his awful friends. And, and uh, you know, so, he, so oh, I yeah. find that, and bad Lieutenant, um, we talked about Abel Ferreira. That's another movie that comes to mind. So these character studies to me are very interesting. Um, just following, uh, these, these people and, and seeing what their, what their story is. Uh, and Ren's story is, is a very, um, I would say unique one. Um, but not too unique, right? I, I think a lot of people maybe found themselves in this category or even today who find themselves moving to a new city and, and mm-hmm. trying to fit in, uh, with different cliques and different groups, um, so I think it's a very relatable story. Yeah. Um, not one that gets told a lot. So mm-hmm. that, I thought that was interesting. Um, and it's definitely very quirky, very raw movie. Um, and it's, it's also, it encapsulates the, the waning punk scene at the time. Um, it kind of hit its peak, I guess, around this time, you could say. Yeah. Um, or I guess even a little bit before, you know, the Sex Pistols, uh, mm-hmm. late 70s, early 80s. Um, so this was, you know, early 80s. And uh, I guess she filmed it. She might have filmed it closer to, what, 1980, probably a little bit earlier. I would, I would imagine for, for an indie like this, yeah, if it came out in 1982, <laughs> it was probably being shot, you know, mm-hmm. 1980, maybe even 79, yeah. possibly. I, I don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. But. but either way, it's, it's, um, it's really uh, one of those movies that's uh, like a snapshot of a time period. And so the movie starts out with this character, Ren, just a a young woman who um, we gather she's recently moved to to New York and she's walking around the streets, handing out flyers for a show. And it really just throws you into like, you know, I think Susan Seidemann does a great job just throwing you into that energy, that like raw energy of of the city and also of the live show once we get into the small venue that that she goes into and the camera work is very kinetic uh, in that opening. And Ren meets someone named Paul, who's a, a young man who's kind of in the same situation as her. And so uh, Ren and Paul meet at the show and they kind of keep running into each other after that. And eventually Paul takes her out. And I, I like that B movie, that horror movie. That they yeah, I, I really enjoyed that theater. as well. <laughs> it's such a, like, I, like a little, you know, nice little um, I, I'm guessing, side thing. Yeah, I'm guessing that that's something that was made by them for the by i don't know i wonder if that was yeah if that was yeah. made for this or if maybe one of her friends had made that or yeah if it was even a film that maybe it's a lot of fun it's a really yeah it's, it reminds me of just like a crazy like student film or something it, so. it feels like something else we would talk about on this podcast definitely for sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so i love that i thought that was great um and paul's in a band uh red ren is not a musician she's not in any bands although I guess her, th- her whole thing, Jeremy, is that she wants to be part of the scene without actually really contributing anything. She doesn't really yeah. play an instrument or sing or anything like that. Um, I guess you could say maybe publicity. She tries to to drum up 
you know, publicity. Kind of like like a manager or a hype r- hype woman. Yeah, <laughs> something in, along those uh, lines. Yeah. So Paul is either in a band or has been, you know, he's a musician. He has been in bands. Um, so Ren tries to help him make connections in the city. Um, and that's another thing I guess you could kind of see her character as, um, you know, being good at is trying to make these connections. Although she ends up, I guess, making the connections herself and kind of goes off, you know, with the person. But um, she starts getting close to someone named Eric, who she meets while, while her and Paul are out. And he is a musician as well. And he's in an up-and-coming band with, uh, as he says, connections in L.A. Um, and we gather that he used to be in a band called the Smithereens. He has a big poster on his wall in his apartment that we see eventually. Um, but they've since broken up, and he's trying to, uh, I guess, get something else going, another band going. And... Um, I think it was him that had a line that I really liked. He said, uh, "It's in the I think it's in the scene where they first meet, or one of the early scenes." He says, "Everyone's a little weird these days. It's normal." Or it's, one, either he said or she said. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I, I just I just wrote that note down because I thought it was um, I thought it was very appropriate for this movie. So she stays over Eric's apartment, and she kind of starts getting close with him, or tries to get close with him. She goes back to her apartment, and I thought this was a, a very fun and funny uh, sequence where she's locked out of her own apartment for missing the rent payments, um, and she's like livid, you know, she's just, uh, just shouting at the landlord. And even though, I mean, it, it's debatable who's in the right in this situation, but I just found it a very, very comical uh, interaction between them. And uh, so Ren goes to her sister. She goes to see her sister. I, I gather her sister either lives in maybe Long Island or a little outside mm-hmm. the city, maybe. Um, and she goes to her to ask for money and talks with her husband and um, and her sister tells her she should move back home. But of course, Ren says uh, she's not setting foot in New Jersey ever again because uh, that's where she's from. And um, she eventually goes back to Paul. And I like that Paul actually stood up for himself in that scene mm-hmm. um, because she basically left him high and dry after they met and went on a date together. And, you know, but Paul's kind of not having it. You know, he's, he's alone by himself in his van in, in the middle of his parking lot. I guess it's like an abandoned parking lot. Um, but ultimately he gives in because I guess she is in some way. Um, a lot of people describe this character, uh, Ren's character, as like annoying. But I, I actually saw her as, as more endearing than that. I guess yeah. maybe I just I have a soft spot for the dreamers, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, um, ultimately he gives in. And because he does like her, I think Paul really does like her in this movie. And mm-hmm. um, there's a, a nice shot of him trying to start his van to kind of get away from her. But Ren's visible in the side mirror um, of the van and she's kind of just standing there watching him. And then he eventually stops and goes back. Um, so um, they actually <laughs> together, they hatch a plot to rob her own apartment uh, to get her stuff back, which I thought was another fun little scene. Mm-hmm. Um, Going so in with little, masks on. <laughs> yeah, a little petty crime there to kind of foreshadow what happens later, which I also liked. Um, and she stays with Paul for a lot of the movie or either stays with him or leaves him and comes back to him uh, in his van in the parking lot. Um, eventually she starts crashing at Eric's place again and he starts bringing another girl home. And, you know, so there, there's this kind of um, back and forth with, uh, okay, who's dating who, who thinks they're dating who, <laughs> who actually doesn't care you know yeah. i kind of I feel like eric doesn't really care right he's like mm-hmm. just kind of trying to get his band going and try to make connections so, yeah yeah he'll do whatever he has to do exactly uh, which is very punk rock so yeah um 
and I like she, when she comes back to his apartment, she's like, didn't you say come back anytime? And he's like, no, no, <laughs> no, I didn't say that. Um, so yeah, he kind of just doesn't care, which I think just makes Ren maybe want to hang out with him more. Cause she probably thinks that's cool and very punk mm-hmm. rock of him. Um, and, um, you know, she comes back and he says some, um, so he, so Ren goes back to Paul again and he's, he's like, come, you know, you come back here stinking like an old drunk, you know? So he kind of keeps trying to push her away. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was one of the more interesting relationship dynamics that I've seen in, you know, in a film, like, are they together romantically or mm-hmm. as roommates, van mates? <laughs> um, or is it more of like a codependent yeah. relationship? They're like both kind of just stubborn. like using yeah. each other. Like he needs company cause he's lonely mm-hmm. and she needs a place to crash. So because of that, yeah. they find some kind of weird balance. Because I think, ultimately this movie is about lonely people right i mean it's yeah. about people that are trying to belong and yeah. it's um, about drifters i mean they're basically drifters, e- yeah. e- even what, what's interesting to me about this movie is even the people who have apartments are still living like they're homeless like they're still mm-hmm. sleeping on the floor the place is a mess the bathtub's mm-hmm. filled with bottles of liquor like e- even the people who, who have it with the exception of, of ren's friend uh whose name is escaping me right this moment um but yeah, but, okay. yeah and i'm not seeing it but but ren as a friend um and Cecile? Celia, uh, Cecile, Cecilia. Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry. For her, so her friend Cecilia, um, with the exception of her, she seems to kind of have it together in terms of her apartment. But even mm-hmm. she says, I have four roommates, you know, and it's yeah. like, like no Which one isn't is uncommon in New York. I guess. No, no, I, I, I've had that many roommates <laughs> yeah. at once for sure. Um, right. But, but it's one of those things where like, no one's really living like a, like a comfortable standard life in yeah. this film um it, it's all they're they're all kind of drifters even if they have a place to sleep every night no no one is really kind of cruising no one seems to have a normal job you mm-hmm. know everyone is kind of all over the place just figuring yeah. out how they're going to get through every single day mm-hmm. yeah how to get through the cracks i guess yeah um and ren has a really good line when she goes back to paul and they're sitting in the van and she says everyone's trying so hard to be cool and they're all a bunch of big zeros yeah and it's like you know because that's like how she sees everyone else but that's kind of also I think secretly how she sees herself or doesn't want to see herself, but um, it's kind of what she's doing. So just to go back to, um, like I said, it's not much of a plot in this film. It's more of a character study, but just to kind of give the rest of what, what basically happens. Um, so surprise, Eric's LA plants fall through um, and he proposes a, a dangerous idea to Ren to get some money. Um, so they end up, um, they rob a man in a bar. So I guess Ren meets him and it's kind of like a, what's the term for that where it's like you're you're like the you find like a mark you know like someone who seems like you can you can kind of get over on them yeah um so they you know she kind of um flirts with this guy this older guy and um they get in a cab together and then paul or i'm sorry and then eric gets in the other side of the cab and and takes a gun out um and and uh you know points it at the guy and and basically they rob him um and this is all to keep their la dreams alive i guess um and um so all the while like what i was thinking is that she it seems like she actually has a lot more in common with the lovable loser paul you know because i feel like eric is more of like he's a bad boy but he's i mean his morals are are very questionable i think and she kind of like leads leads ren down this path um you saw it a little bit in the scene with paul where they go back to get her stuff from her apartment Mm -hmm. you know they put the masks on it's kind of like they're they're robbing her own apartment but i mean it is her apartment so it's not like actually that bad you know but i saw that as a uh, kind of like a lead up to this scene so this is obviously a lot more serious um 
And eventually, Eric just takes the money and runs. So, you know, we assume that he's gone to L.A. I think her, his girlfriend slash roommate uh, tells Ren that when she comes. To I think I think that was actually his wife. I think she said that they got married oh, at right. some point. Yeah. yeah. Was it wife or ex-wife? I forget. I, I think wife. Um, I think he yeah. said, she said we got married a month ago. Right. So, yeah, and, I forgot that. So he actually has a wife. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, Eric is not the most um, forthcoming individual. It kind of seems like he's out for himself mm-hmm. to, you know, just to get big. So, um, but anyway, he's, he takes the money and runs, I guess from his wife too. Um, so, and then she goes back to the club that we saw from the beginning, um, the peppermint lounge, which is actually like a, a real uh, club that was around back in the day. And um, she gets kicked out of the club and she's kind of throwing a fit there. And, literally thrown out in the street and she goes back to Paul who, you know, who's still in the van in the parking lot and only Paul's not there. It's just the man who actually bought his van from him, who we saw earlier in the movie asking him about his van. So Paul actually isn't there at the end. And, um, but at least she gets her portable TV back, right? Yeah. She, <laughs> she does get that. She, um, she's carries that black and white TV around through the whole movie. Um, but that's the ending basically is her kind of just walking away again and, and going off on her own. And like you said, Jeremy, she's a, she's a drifter. She's so a drifter. As it makes sense. As they come. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty much the end of the movie there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. This is just, it's such an interesting film um, because it feels just, just so kind of unlike so many of the films you see about dreamers you know, about, about people who are chasing something. It's well, like it's very youth oriented. It's like the, the aimless youth. I felt Yeah. Like. And, and, uh, and I think that word aimless is a perfect way to put it. Mm-hmm. Is it almost seems like none of these people really know what they want. They just, it just mm-hmm. kind of seems like they're young and they feel like they should like, we, we understand she wants to kind of be part of the scene, but like we even said before, like we don't really exactly understand what she wants to do with it. it mm-hmm. It's kind of like a, a dog, you know, like chasing a garbage truck. It's <laughs> like, she, she just wants to get it because she feels like she should. There, there's not really any, it doesn't seem like there's a point to it. It doesn't seem like, you know, she's not a musician who is practicing her music. She doesn't really seem to have any business skills. She just kind of wants to be part of this world. Mm-hmm. Um, just in the way I kind of get the feeling like, you know, um, Paul, when he's stopping by the city, it, he just, it, it doesn't really seem like he knows why he's stopping by New York City. It kind of just right. seems like he just wanted to kind of experience it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and there's there's this kind of interesting thing, which, which I just thought of now with you kind of recapping the plot here, Mark, is this idea of hierarchy um, mm-hmm. and this idea that it's kind of like there's a chain of command where, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, it seems like Eric is kind of above Ren, you know, mm-hmm. like, like, like he, she's kind of having to chase after him. And then it seems yeah. like Ren is kind of above Paul a little bit. And he's kind of chasing yeah. her. <laughs> and, but what's interesting, what I like about this so much is just because someone is kind of lower down in the totem pole doesn't mean that they don't get agency. It doesn't mean that they don't get to argue and stand up for themselves. You yeah. know, all, all these characters are, are fighting for themselves. Well, that's what know. I liked about Paul. Yeah, like I said, he, he does stand up for himself, even though yeah. he ultimately usually ends up taking Ren back because yeah. he is lonely. You know, they're both lonely. But um, even at the end of the film, he's not there anymore. Like, he's left. Yeah, so yeah he, he makes himself heard. He's done um, with her, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think I think what's interesting in this one, because as I mentioned earlier, there, there are some people, some uh, kind of people who, who are, are critical of this film and who aren't as fond of it will talk about Ren as annoying. Yeah, um, which like is really... described as like abrasive and yeah, all kinds of, which I, I understand, but yeah. yeah I, me, under, I, I understand where they're coming from. I don't know, at least personally, I, I think a lot of that probably has to do with the fact that we're following a young woman rather than a young man. Yeah, I think if. Be... Yeah. You know, because you, you see plenty of these these, these young men in sim, in cinema mm-hmm. who are who are you know kind of jackasses and yeah. taking advantage. I mean, I don't think 
You don't like, see that too much with yeah with young women, and, and I, I think I think if her character was a man, people would say, "Oh, he's you know he's he's a shady dealer. He, he's tough. Yeah. He's great. He's just a shyster. Yeah. He's just a, but because it's a young right. woman, I think people are kind of like, mm-hmm. "Oh, she's annoying." But like, I, I think yeah. there's something kind of really radically exciting, particularly about a movie from 1982 that yeah. shows like a young woman fighting. But mm-hmm. not in a glamorous way. Like she's not yeah. like the sweet girl who wants something. Like she's it someone actually, who's a little weathered. It felt like very modern, actually. Yeah. Um, to you know, because now you see it more, a little bit more frequently. You know, I mm-hmm. feel like there's more diversity now, and mm-hmm. um, so. But at the time, yeah, 1982, and a woman, woman filmmaker as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I thought that she was very interesting, and you d- definitely not a character that you see a lot in in movies, uh, especially around that time. Which, um, yeah, I think that's why I was so fascinated by her and interested in, in what she was going to do next. And I did want to talk about the acting because I felt like the, uh, the, the actor choices were interesting. And I think they made sense because I think actually all the stars of the movie, apart from Richard Hell, were all newcomers to the screen. Uh, Richard Hell obviously is a, um, well, I guess maybe not obviously. I, I actually wasn't too familiar with him, but he was um, a very big punk figure influencing, you said even Sex Pistols, right, Jeremy? Yeah, from what I understand, he was one of the first people, you know, sonically he was he was a big deal, but I think the kind of the bigger thing with him even is um, aesthetically, you know, he was one of the first people to wear the spiky hair and the ripped yeah. clothes. He, he, when, when you think of like... When you think of punk rock. A 70s you. punk rocker, that right. that guy you think of, is Richard mm-hmm. Hell. Like he, he's, he's the one who he's had, credited with yeah. starting that trend, yeah. Yeah. So he kind of had the whole style down and he was in a lot of bands, um, I would say notably television, a band called Neon Boys, The Heartbreakers, and <clears throat> he also was uh, he had a band after his own name, Richard Hell and the Voidoids. And they had an album Blank Generation, which was very influential. It came out in nineteen seventy seven a very influential uh, punk album. And so he was legit. I mean he was the real deal. Um and so I guess you could say at this time in the early 80s, maybe his he wasn't as, uh, you know, maybe he wasn't as uh, prolific. But um, I think it's interesting to have some a figure like that in this movie and uh, playing that role. It just brings that extra authenticity to it. Yeah. And I think everyone in the movie does feel very authentic. And um, I think sometimes maybe the acting didn't work as well as maybe everyone wanted it to, as a filmmaker want, wanted it to. Um, but I think that's just part of it being a very raw, uh, you know, kind of visceral film. I think they were more, they were just trying to get a certain energy down, you know, and just doing what they could and, mm-hmm. and filming what they knew, you know, the streets that they knew and the people that they, they were associated with. So Well, and um, also probably not as many, you know, takes as you would get on a yeah, normal film. True. We're, we're yeah. talking about a, a very low budget film yeah. where realistically they might have only had a location long enough to do one take and if you didn't get the exact mm-hmm. perfect performance you wanted you know yeah. that's life and you just have to live with it yeah i think a lot of times you do see the limitations in the acting but like i said a lot of these actors this was their first role ever um mm-hmm. maybe maybe they had appeared in a maybe off broadway play or something like that but this was their first film for a lot of these people so um yeah i thought everyone did a, a good job um and i think conveyed what you know what what um susan seidelman was looking for and um, actually, the one actor um, who played uh, who played Paul, um, he was in a movie with Zoe Lund when I was looking up his credits. Oh, really? That's so funny. Oddly enough, from you know, from Miss Forty Five, mm-hmm. uh, special effects from nineteen eighty five, oh, yeah. which I found interesting because that just has a direct connection to another movie we talked mm-hmm. about in the series. Um, 
But um, yeah, I thought so. The acting was interesting in the movie, and I did like the main actress, uh, Susan Berman, is her name, who played mm-hmm. Ren. Um, you know, I thought she, I thought it was a very interesting portrayal of a wannabe who's always chasing after the next big thing, wanting to be part of the scene without actually really doing anything. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I found I found her endearing and appealing in, in that sense, and kind of sad actually. I, you know, I found yeah. her to be a very sad character, um, but she has moments of you know, just being funny and, and kind of yeah. seeing things as a joke, which is very punk rock, I would say. Um, yeah. But I think, yeah, um, all around, it was a good portrayal of youth in general. Um, that longing, the wanting to be a part of something or mm-hmm. to belong. I mean, that, that, that definitely is what comes across here. Yeah. And I think, so. I think something that's funny, too, um, is that this character, what she really wants is to be part of the punk scene and live the punk life. But mm-hmm. there's kind of nothing more punk than the life she's already living. You know what I mean? Like, like that. The it's idea true, yeah. of, of punk rock is like, oh, you have to be gritty. And and I think and I think there is this thing. Um, you know, I, I I'm a pretty big rock and roll fan, and I think Mark, mm-hmm. you are as well, yeah. just based on mm-hmm. some other stuff we talked about in the past. Is there is this idea in rock and roll where it's like you're supposed to kind of come from nothing, and you have to live in the streets for a while, and you know, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the bands that we know and love who kind of have that narrative might not have kind of done it as much as we thought. You know, mm-hmm. like it's like the thing where you find out that someone you know oh they were so street but realistically <laughs> their you know dad is the executive oh, yeah. at the record Trust company fun baby or, yeah, yeah or something like that which, which there's nothing wrong like believe right. me I, I i i know people and i know of people who come from lineage in the film industry and the music industry and are successful who are wonderfully talented and deserve everything they get yeah. nothing wrong doesn't with, mean you can't be authentic doesn't mean but but, but it, it's one of those things when, when you, you see a lot of people kind of claiming to have come from nothing when yeah. they didn't um and it, so it's interesting in this seeing someone who really kind of has nothing, you know, like she's really living the punk rock lifestyle yeah. because it's like she has no prospects. She's just a punk, you know, it's almost like there's nothing more punk than just kind of wandering aimlessly, you yeah. know, like, not like, really being part of anything. Yeah, Like she, she's not punk. She is a punk. Like she is just she is a punk. She, yeah. she is just exactly. a, a street dwelling miscreant yeah. who just causes trouble for people, which is, which is kind of really radically fun yeah. to watch. It's a unique um, character. And I thought. Like one of the, I actually thought the most interesting thing about Ren as a main character is that she's one of those characters that you don't know if she's lying or if mm-hmm. she really believes what she says. Yeah. Or a little, or a little bit of both. You know, it's almost like you could. It's almost like you can never really take what she says at face value. Yeah. Which or is if interesting. She, or if she even knows. Or if know? she even knows. Yeah. It, it exactly. seems like sometimes she's saying things kind of like, believing that it'll be true yeah. but deep she might, down knowing it's not <laughs> she might feel like she's being genuine or think she's being genuine but she really isn't yeah so i thought that kind of yeah i thought that was interesting to see in a main character in a movie for sure mm-hmm. um so yeah we talked about the acting a little bit i did want to mention obviously so i actually realized when i was watching this movie jeremy that um we've talked about a lot of the first films from a filmmaker in the series mm-hmm. or we will be talking about a lot yeah. um coming up um, you know, we talked about Miss 45. Um, we're going to talk about um, Spike Lee's first film. So and I think that makes sense. Right. For, yeah. you know, because first film f- from directors. Um, so we're talking about independent films here. And obviously, like, th- the, you know, th- these people went on to be uh, these iconic directors, a lot of them, but they had to start somewhere. And I think you really see that here with uh, Susan Seidelman. Um, and I it made me want to watch um, Desperately Seeking Susan which she did after this. Um, I've, I've heard good things about that movie. Yeah, it's, so it's I definitely an interesting want to continue film. Yeah. My, yeah, continue my journey with her because it's, it's, really it's, definitely, it's definitely a lot more polished. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely... Well, it has Madonna in it, so... Yeah, it has, it's, it it's definitely a, a lot more of like, 
don't want to say like a Hollywood film, but it kind of feels more like an 80s movie mm-hmm. in a weird way. Like to me, what, what I love about this movie is it, it feels totally like an 80s movie, but it's so specific that it kind of transcends that. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's just so, so like such like a, like a dart thrown at a specific point in time and a specific mm-hmm. scene in time that it, it almost doesn't feel like an 80s movie. It kind of just feels like this artifact that is just mm-hmm. exists separately on its own of that thing. Yeah. Well, obviously she would go on to do more Hollywood projects, but I yeah. think, yeah, this is like her, her first film, I guess. Um, maybe she had done some student films, but this was like her first, you know, actual first film. Feature, so, yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, um, a great first effort. And I think just has that raw energy, not only because it's a first time filmmaker, but just the scene that they were documenting at the time is very raw. And, uh, yeah, I thought it was very like, you know, exciting world to be in and the camera work I thought was, was, um, at times very, you know, it, it fit, it fit what they were trying to portray. Like I said, the, the scene early on with her in the club, like it's kind of, you know, the, the camera's kind of like moving along with her and, you know, I thought it was very dynamic. So, um, it's definitely a great film for uh, budding filmmakers to check out. I think it's mm-hmm. like one of those inspiring uh, first <laughs> first films to check out. And um, very interesting as well that um, this film, I- I've seen different reports. So I've seen reported that it was one of the first American independent films to be selected to show in the main competition at, Cannes, at the Cannes Film Festival. Um, but I've also seen that it is the very first American film or American independent film American to indie, screen, yeah. yeah, to show at the Cannes Film Festival. So, um, whether whichever one of those is true, it's it's very impressive, and especially I, for how much of an indie film this is. The, yeah. We're not talking about like indie, but like with a good amount of money to support it. Like we're talking about a, like an indie with a capital I, you mm-hmm. know, shooting it with your friends kind of film. Right. So. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah. And um, so I'm, I'm definitely glad that we included it in this series. Um, but yeah, I didn't have too much else to say about this movie. I just really enjoyed it my first time watching it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think it was like one of those movies, uh, you know, similar to Liquid Sky or other movies we watched yeah. where it's super low budget and you can tell it's just like friends and family, you know, they're helping out with the crew and acting and showing up in the movie. And there's also... Um, I think there's some other like punk, um, you know, people of the punk scene at that time that kind of show up in the movie in different roles. And mm-hmm. um, um, the, actually, you know what? The, the last thing I wanted to talk about, Jeremy, is the music because we the movie yeah. is very much about music. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you feel about how the music was presented in this movie? I, I really enjoyed the, the the music with this. I mean, it's, it's subtle. I, I think for a movie that's kind of about the punk scene, I, I mm-hmm. think it, it would have been easy to, especially for a, an independent film, to just fill the movie up with just scenes yeah. of like bands playing music, um, which could be cool in its own right. But mm-hmm. I, I feel like it could have been a little bit of a distraction because that's not really what it's about. Yeah. Um, I, I like that it was kind of just like a subtle little touch. How the, the, this it's almost this, like background music. Yeah, yeah, the, the, and, the, and just this theme would be worked mm-hmm. in. What what I will say is that um, that opening, the very opening shot of the film, it's a shot of a woman holding a pair of sunglasses. These these kind of checkerboard yeah. sunglasses that remind me of a pair of Vans skate mm-hmm. shoes. Um, she's holding these sunglasses and it's slow motion and you just have like this kind of like big guitar like build up and then and then uh, Ren steals the sunglasses and runs away. Um, mm-hmm. Just just for me that moment and I, and I think that was the that moment was honestly the thing the first time I watched this movie that stuck with me more than anything else that I just loved is it's yeah. just like you're just so thrown into the film and it's just 
Like, the, 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 it's one of those things where when you get one of those moments in a movie where the image, you know, the lighting and the music it just all work and, and the, the writing, just everything just works together. I, I think that that moment in this, is, in this movie, that, that opening shot, is one of those rare moments when everything mm-hmm. just comes together just so perfectly and you're just thrown into a world and just totally get exactly the feeling Mm-hmm. Uh, of the film from the first few seconds of of the the picture. Yeah, I feel like there's actually a couple of iconic shots in the movie. Like, um, mm-hmm. though you know, you mentioned the wardrobe in Miss Forty Five. I think the wardrobe in this movie was really good, yeah, and terrific. I think probably very authentic. I mean, there's probably a lot of the clothes that maybe the crew or they cast <laughs> were actually wearing. Yeah, yeah. Or, or owned, um, or they probably just got them from thrift stores. But the scene, I think it's towards the end of the movie actually, where Ren is sitting on the subway train, and she's dressed in like this very extravagant getup. It's just like very flashy, but also very punk rock at the same time. It's like short skirt, you know, the red uh, Mm -hmm. lace up shoes. And she's got this like pink, I don't know if it's like Angora or what it is um, top on. And it's just like all those colors going on with her laying on the subway uh, seat is just really good. And, and one of those, like for me, iconic images of like indie film Mm -hmm. and um, uh, to just touch on the music really quickly. I, I agree with you, Jeremy, because it's I'm kind of in the middle because part of me expected more, I guess, from the music aspect of the film because the movie is about punk rockers and I thought, mm-hmm. oh, maybe it'd be like a cool soundtrack or whatever. And I do like the soundtrack, but I agree with you, though, that you said, you know, you, you mentioned that you could go too far in that direction. You could lean too heavily on the music. Mm-hmm. And I think it's refreshing that the movie did not do that and that it um, kind of just let it be a little bit of like a, you know, background character or side character in the yeah. film uh, as opposed to the main character, right? So um, there really wasn't, I don't think there's hardly any scenes besides maybe a couple of quick scenes at the club where you actually yeah. see anyone playing music or any yeah. bands like performing or anything like that. It's not so, what it's about. It's not what it's about. Yeah. So in a way it's actually pretty refreshing and cause they were focused on a different aspect of, of what, you know, what was happening in the scene. So I actually thought that was kind of cool. And um, the more I think about it, I think I, I do like that, that approach to the music. And also I wonder, you know, maybe how much of that was they couldn't get the rights to music or, yeah. you know, I wonder if they, they had people in, like friends and bands that maybe could have provided music. Although you would think with Re- Richard Hell in the movie, they could get some right. punk music. Exactly. Yeah. You know? So maybe that was a, yeah, maybe it so, was more uh, of an artistic choice. it was choice. kind of an artistic, yeah. Yeah. Maybe they just decided they didn't want to do that. So, um, so yeah, good on them. I, th- I think that was, it worked out well. Um, but yeah, I think it's a very unique film and definitely one to check out uh, if you're interested in cult films or indie films or both. Um, Jeremy, did you have any, any last thoughts or any like moments or scenes that really stuck out to you? Um, I think that opening scene was the big one for me that I just wanted to make yeah, sure we hit on that. Um, I, I will say just with, with this movie, if you enjoyed this one, a couple other recommendations that I would have are um, another, well, first off, just another uh, female filmmaker, which is exciting, is The Decline of Western Civilization, uh, part one, Penelope Spheris. Really, yeah. really terrific. Kind of, as far as I'm concerned, the definitive documentary on punk music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so she did it. Throughout different decades, correct? It was it was it's mostly seventies. Um, she okay. the decline of Western civilization came out in nineteen eighty one. Um, okay. So so it's mostly seventies into early eighties. But just but yeah but so she did that that was part one. Then she had uh, decline of Western civilization part two. It's right. called the Metal Years, um, okay. which is about kind of Los Angeles metal. Which I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of hair metal. Um, so yeah. I, I really enjoy that one. And then I believe mm-hmm. part three. I don't think I've actually seen part three. But I believe part three kind of gets more into like nineties punk. 
Um, so, so, but it is, it is interesting seeing these three movies kind of track that. So that's one recommendation. Decline Penelope Western. Spheres, right? That's Penelope Spheres, yeah, who also directed Wayne's World. Wayne's World, yeah. Yeah, which uh, is so, one of my favorite comedies of all time. Yeah, so, so, so someone who really understands rock and roll. Um, yeah. And then another recommendation, um, if you like this one, just this kind of gritty New York City ragtag filmmaking style, is the film Heaven Knows What. Um, it's, it's the, not the set, not their first film, but one of the Safdie brothers first films, the Safdie brothers who oh, of okay. course did, uh, uncut gems recently right. and, uh, good time. Um, un- heaven knows what it, it's a pretty heavy movie. It, it's about heroin addiction. Um, but just in terms of gritty New York city filmmaking, I think it's a terrific contemporary example that clearly owes some debts to filmmakers like Susan Seidelman and films like smithereens. So just, those are a couple movies that if you like this one, I think might be worth kind of checking out. Great. Awesome. And next time on the show, we're going to go to 1983 with Valley Girl, um, directed by Martha Coolidge. And that has Nicolas Cage in it. And I'm always down for some Nicolas Cage. So very excited. I've not seen that film either. So uh, watch along with us and check it out. And we'll talk about it in uh, part four of our series, 80s Indies. Thank you very much for listening to Cult Movie Cult. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook if you have any cult films you'd like to hear us discuss on the show. Or if you'd like to officially join the cult and be a guest on the show, please feel free to reach out to us at cultmoviecult at gmail.com. This has been Cult Movie Cult, and until next time, so long from the other side.